Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, Let's Finish Cancer, where we bring you the brightest cancer experts and compassionate cancer navigators. Our goal is to make you stronger at a time you might feel at your weakest and to empower you to make the best decisions for you and your family. You'll hear about the latest in technology and treatment options, stories of patients and survivors, doctors that see you as more than a cancer diagnosis, and a whole person approach to cancer care. We want to be on your journey with you, and we know that at times it can be bumpy, but we're here and we want to help you forward. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Melanie Bergman, a gynecologic oncologist from Spokane, Washington, and today we're discussing cervical and ovarian cancers. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our guest today, Dr. Bergman. Thank you for joining us. Well, I'm very excited to chat with you today. Tell us a little bit about your role at Providence as we get started. Hi, uh, good morning. And Mary, thank you for inviting me. Um, This is my first podcast, so I will try and do a reasonable job. Um, So I am a gynecologic oncologist. And really what I'd like to um, let your audience know is what a gynecologic oncologist is. I am an OBGYN through training and within the American College of OBGYN, there are what's called subspecialties. And subspecialties are where a physician will choose to be an expert in a particular division of women's health. Women's health entails lots of different uh, reproductive needs and care. And gynecologic oncology specifically focuses on cancer, Um, cancer prevention, cancer education, cancer treatment, and cancer uh, side effects, and um, sometimes, unfortunately, even cancer end of life. Um, So a gynecologic oncologist is an OBGYN that stops delivering babies. So I haven't delivered a baby in 25 years. Um, I will deliver one on an airplane if necessary, though. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) You keep up Um, on how to do it. That's good to know. (laughs) But um, what a gynecologic oncologist is, is we focus on cancer. And so my patients either have a risk of cancer, they've been diagnosed, or they are survivors. And we do surgery. So we'll do the cancer surgeries. We do um, cancer chemotherapy and treatment. We work very closely with radiation oncologists and a team. We work with nutritionists. We work with um, home health, um, pharmacy, and we treat the whole patient through their journey from do I have cancer to I have cancer to I'm a survivor. It's quite a journey. I mean, you, you <laughs> wrap it up so quickly, but it is, it's such a journey. And I feel like we're hearing more about women's gynecological cancers. Like I think, I mean, we hear so much about HPV and how it causes cancer, but I, I know I hear a lot about ovarian cancer and cervical cancer, but there's other kinds. Talk to me about what kind of cancer you might get as a, as a gynecological uh, cancer expert. Okay. Um, anything, uh, this is kind of what I, I joke, but anything below the belt. Um, I don't do breast surgery. That would be a breast surgical oncologist, anything else though. And sometimes it's when there's something that nobody knows what it is. We will focus on 
the uterus, tubes, and ovaries, which of course are the well-known gynecologic parts. Um, the cervix is the lower portion of the uterus, so that encompasses that. The skin on the outside, called vulva, the vaginal tissue. Interesting, this is something that people may not know about gynecologic oncology, but there are certain cancer type syndromes that are associated with a false pregnancy, so to speak. Those are called trophoblast disease. So gynecologic oncologists take care of unusual gynecologic or pregnancy associated situations as well. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard about that. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Are, are you starting to see more cases? Are we starting to see maybe earlier detection because we have better um, tests? Or, or talk to me a little bit about how we're determining that we have cancer in the first place. Okay. Uh, the most common gynecologic cancer is uterine. And unfortunately, that's because a little bit of lifestyle and society changes because it is strongly associated with obesity, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, and kind of the metabolic syndromes that the world is going through. Um, so that one is on the rise. Some of the other ones are being early detected, and so they're on the decline, and sometimes even prevented. We're going to go into it a little bit later, I believe, but HPV, which is human papillomavirus, is the number one cause of cervical cancer. And now fortunately, and this has happened within my career because when I started, we did not have HPV vaccines. And now midway towards the end of my career, we have a prevention for this cancer. So I am fortunate to see this evolution of what we thought was never going to be controllable we now can almost 100% prevent it when the HPV vaccine becomes widely accepted. Um, the other cancers like ovarian, I don't think that the amount or the rate of cancer is increasing, but sometimes we're able to detect it sooner or earlier because we're more aware of the associated risks. And we're going to go into that. That would be some genetic uh, knowledge that we have. So cancer kind of fluctuates and you can't say gynecologic cancers are all going up or all going down because each one has an individual pattern based on different variables. It's interesting that you were talking about kind of the lifestyle because I think most of us think about cancer either as a lifestyle like smoking causes lung cancer. And I mean, we can go into that, right? There's so many things you can get lung cancer from, but most of us, I think, think about gynecological cancer as being genetic, but it, you're, you're not. You're saying that it could be lifestyle, but are there some versions of gynecological cancer that are genetic? I, I ask you this because my grandma had ovarian cancer and my mom's always telling me, make sure you get your pap smear. Oh, good. You, you actually just said something that is wildly misconstrued. So oh. I, I don't, I'm not trying to... Um, highlight that, but that's a great talking point. Ovarian cancer, and I, I wish I could draw a picture. This is what I do with patients in the office as I, I sketch out on a piece of paper gynecologic anatomy. So the ovaries are inside of the abdominal cavity, and the cervix is the lower portion of the uterus, 
which is inside of the vagina. And that's why when you go to the doctor, they take out that horrible bird beak object called a speculum and they do a pap smear. So the pap smear is looking at the cervix. Your ovaries, oh, which are deep inside, right. cannot be detected or checked or monitored through a pap smear. Um, what is important for your grandmother's advice is that when you go to the doctor, whether it's a primary care doctor who can do a pelvic exam or an OBGYN doctor, they can, or a nurse practitioner, and we have lots of lots of providers, but they can feel the ovaries on a pelvic exam. So the pap smear and the speculum is looking at the tissue inside, looking for any lumps, lesions, bleeding, and the what we call a bimanual or the internal exam is feeling for any abnormalities that could be representative of a problem like a mass, an ovarian mass, or something that feels irregular or lumpy. And those are different screening modalities. Unfortunately, doing an exam by your hands does not catch or detect ovarian cancer. It only detects a mass or a problem when it's already there. On the flip side, the pap smear is great advice by your grandmother, and that detects pre-cancer changes called dysplasia, and that does lead to prevention or early detection of cervical cancers. So your grandma was correct, <laughs> not about ovarian. Well, I'll be super honest. I might, I might as well just tell the whole world. Every every show, somebody finds out something about my medical history. So I am no stranger <laughs> to like the transvag ultrasounds. I've had, yeah. I've had um, cervical cancer. I've had ovarian cysts. I've had them rupture. I've had an ablation. I've had the whole nine yards. Like literally, I have no pride when it comes below the belt anymore. Everybody's seen it. So <laughs> I hear, I hear what you're saying because. Even that, I was I was dealing with like the the cervical piece, and then all of a sudden I had an ovarian cyst rupture, and they didn't even know I had it. Right? They were like, "Wait, so we were looking down here, we needed to be looking up here." So I think it's really right. important for people to think about where your body, where those places are that need maybe different kinds of assessments. So let's just say I come to you, and I say I'm having horrible cramping, horrible bleeding, whatever, and it could you know it could be endometriosis, whatever. But what would I typically see if I if if I was thinking that maybe I had something wrong with me? Would you do a pap smear and then an ultrasound? What does that look like in order to find out that maybe I do have cancer? Oh, I wish there was a straightforward and simple answer to that. I I don't want to take apart your question too much. Um, let me think this through and see how best to answer that. Let's start with cervical cancer or cervical screening, because I hope that when somebody presents to the doctor, they're not already having symptoms of or warning signs of cervical cancer. The pap smear is a screening test. And what the definition of a screening test is, is any test that can detect a problem and allow the practitioner to intervene and help the patient to hopefully mitigate the problem or uh, lead to detection of a circumstance that can be cured. We want to cure things or prevent. Prevent is better, but if you can catch something early, there's your potential to cure a problem. 
So screening means you can do something to make the situation better. For cervical cancer, we have a perfect screening test. It's called a pap smear. There's also HPV viral testing. That's um, a newer, uh, more um, accurate, actually, way of adding to screening for cervical cancer. Wait, and what is that? Talk to me about that. I haven't heard about that. <laughs> okay. So um, can we put that on a side note? We can. I'm going to take a note. We're going to come back to that. Okay. okay. Um, so for cervix disease, let's call it disease because cervix problems, it's not always cancer. We want it to never become cancer. For cervix disease, which includes precancer or dysplasia, if you catch it, you can correct it, and hopefully the patient will never have to see me. I don't treat cervical dysplasia as much as the regular OBGYNs. So if you can prevent cancer, you can see me in the grocery store and know me socially. You don't have to see me in the office, which would be wonderful. I would love to get rid of cervical cancer and never have to have these talks with patients. I like no. you, Dr. Bergman. Yeah. I, like I, I personally don't want to have yeah. to see you in the office. I'd no, much rather no. we do it this way. No, I love what I do. I, I help people a lot, but it would be lovely if you never have to see me for a problem because once you're seeing me, there's something that's potentially serious or serious going on. I can still help you. I can still possibly cure you, but it, it's now something that's changed a woman's life and they now have uh, a different path in front of them. Um, but the reason I, I started on this journey here is ovarian cancer. Right now, we do not have an adequate screening tool to detect early ovarian cancer. And that is a problem with ovarian cancer is it is not as apparent to somebody that they have it until the symptoms may potentially already be symptoms that it's advanced. And perhaps someday there will be maybe something genetic, maybe something blood, maybe something radiographic. I don't know. That would be my dream is that we could early detect ovarian cancer. And there have been lots of trials and, and lots of models and uh, predictive things based on ultrasounds and family history. And so there are some guidelines for documented high-risk patients, but there's not a screening test for the general population for ovarian cancer. You, you said that they wouldn't get to you until they were showing those signs. What would those signs be? What would they be looking for? Um, do you want both diseases separately or, or I, it's kind let's, of, let's go with, let's stick with ovarian. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. fascinated about that one right now. Okay. Okay. Um, honestly, you could do a podcast on every single gynecologic disease and, and have it be, you know, three episodes. So <laughs> Dr. Bergman, I, as you're talking, I literally took a note and I'm like, she needs to come back and we need to create a show called Below the Belt. And <laughs> I personally think you and I should have this conversation because I, there's no way we're going to cover all this in this time. No. You're right. But I think we're going to no. get as much as we can high level and then we're going to do some yeah. deep dive. You know, I, I like the name. That That's a great name. It's yeah. all you. It's all you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the operating room, we sometimes we, we say unusual things. And our joke is that Whatever we say, we say, oh, that would be a good name for a band. So. <laughs> I like it. Below the Belt with Bergman. It's a show and a band. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Um, 
So uh, ovarian cancer, um, yes. warning signs or, or symptoms um, of ovarian cancer. The problem can be that they're so vague. Um, there is actually a National Ovarian Cancer Alliance that um, is um, trying to educate the population about signs that shouldn't be ignored, that should be investigated to make sure it's not something like ovarian cancer. But you can't interview a patient and say, oh, you have ovarian cancer based on these symptoms. The symptoms have to be investigated further. And the classic symptoms that need to be investigated further would be abdominal discomfort that has no other clear cause that is persistent over time and does not resolve in between, doesn't come and go, and potentially can get worse and worse. Another sign is bladder or pelvic irritation bladder pressure, um, pelvic pressure, feelings of UTIs that don't go away, that if you have a UTI and it's documented on a urinalysis that there's bacteria and you get treated for that UTI, then that was a UTI. It's not anything further. But if you have those symptoms of a UTI and the kind of warning is more than three in a short period of time, and the second or the third one, the doctor or the urgent care that you go to doesn't have any bacteria. They say, oh, well, there's nothing there. I, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, that's a warning sign that that should be investigated further. Um, and then there's the subpopulation of high-risk patients. In the high-risk patients, we don't want them to be looking for symptoms or signs. We want them to proactively get genetic testing, find out if they're in the high risk group. And just to put it out there, because people might be thinking, am I in that? That is the genetic mutation or the group called BRCA, B-R-C-A. And there's a, several um, DNA mutations that we know about, but they're grouped into the high risk population called BRCA. And there's actually other high risk populations, other genetic syndromes that have um, risks of ovarian cancer. But those patients, rather than wait for the warning signs and symptoms, which are very vague, those patients should get testing or counseling about preventative things that they can do. And then eventually we recommend what's called a risk reduction surgery, which is where you just take those parts out. We don't want that risk. And the reason we don't want that risk is because there are not reliable screening tests. If there was a reliable screening test, I wouldn't want to operate on somebody unnecessarily. But because we don't have that screening test and those symptoms, the pelvic pressure, urinary symptoms, GI symptoms, bloating, I didn't mention one which is called early satiety, which is where you eat a small amount of food and you feel really full and that's not typical for you. Again, the key is that the symptom persists. If it's a symptom that you eat a bite of something and you feel full because you had bad Mexican three nights before, that's not ovarian cancer. That's because you ate bad Mexican or any other category of food. I don't know why I picked Mexican. Anyway. It's one of my favorites. So the odds I were know. likely for me. <laughs> I guess you feel, I guess you just found out a little bit about me. You might feel bloated after that kind of a meal, right? <laughs> so um, if the symptom though is 
related to something that happened in real life, then it's probably not cancer. So I don't want people to be frightened or concerned that if they feel bloating, because bloating is such a very common symptom. And you can have bloating from, you know, a laundry list of, of 30 different things that may be something chronic or maybe something transient. But the key is, if you have persistent early satiety or bloating or pelvic pressure or urinary symptoms that don't go away. And my personal advice to people is three weeks. If something is there for three weeks, that doesn't make sense. Really, somebody should hear about that in the medical profession and it should be investigated. It may turn out to be nothing. It may be that you have taken too much Aleve and have gastritis or, or stomach upset, or it could be something really serious that now can be detected and the process of taking care of it can be initiated much sooner than when it was going to obviously declare itself six months later. I have a question for you, and it, it's maybe it's for all different kinds of gynecological cancer, but it, it's it's related to age and it's related to pregnancy because a lot of times we hear that we're more likely to get some of these cancers the older we get, and sometimes we hear you're more likely to have it if you've had babies. Nope, no, you're more likely to have it if you haven't had babies. How does age and your you know whether you've had babies or not affect gynecological cancer? And that's back to the below the belt series because every it's it's confounding to people because they hear one thing and then they hear something different and th those concepts are incompatible. Um, this is a horrible statement that I'm going to say, but it's kind of true. Smoking actually decreases the incidence of a couple particular cancers, one being um endometrial and but it's not for good reasons so i'm not recommending that people go out and start smoking right you smoking did not hear causes, that here people <laughs> right smoking causes way more harm right, than good right. but the reason that smoking um at least we we very small variable this is not anything that that is a the number one cause but smoking causes premature ovarian failure meaning because smokers have bad vascular problems, they get less blood supply to the ovaries and the ovaries go through menopause or failure sooner than somebody who doesn't smoke. Because excess estrogen leads to endometrial cancer, if you have less estrogen because you've hurt your ovaries with a particular behavior, then you have a less risk of uterine cancer. But that, so that's a kind of a, a extreme example of how things can be confounding. Um, pregnancy, when a woman is pregnant for nine months, they don't ovulate because your body is really smart and your ovaries know that if there's a fetus in you're producing hormones to grow that baby, you don't have to ovulate because you're not trying to conceive. So you shut off your ovaries for nine months. And one of the concepts of how ovarian cancer happens is when an ovary lets an egg out, when it ruptures and you ovulate, the capsule of the ovary called the epithelium has to break apart, the egg has to spit out, and then the capsule has to heal. And the healing process is where we think 
potential mutations or errors could happen on the surface of the ovary. So if you have nine months where you're not ovulating, your ovary has nine months less of potential healing error on the epithelium that could potentially lead to a mutation. So pregnancy is protective somewhat of ovarian cancer. So if that you have, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm glad I can explain it without drawing. Yeah. I, I usually no, draw. it's, it's like, it's like it took a rest. It didn't, it didn't go for a run. So it didn't have a chance to damage its leg. <laughs> I get you. I get you. Right. Right. The ovarian leg. That's one I've never heard of. <laughs> I like to keep it interesting, doc. Okay. Okay. Um, so if you have more pregnancies, you have a lower risk. So that's where the term multi-parity so people who are multiparous don't have as high a risk as ovarian cancer. But, but that's not as strong a variable as having a genetic mutation. So you can still have five children, but if you have a higher risk of a BRCA mutation, you still have a higher risk of ovarian cancer than the normal population. So these, these conditions or these situations, these small variables like being pregnant, that only protects the general population as a whole. Um, so women who've never had a child have a slightly higher risk of ovarian cancer than somebody who's had multiple children, as long as they don't have anything that is a higher risk variable. See, and I thought it was completely the opposite because I don't have kids and I kept thinking, well, I haven't used all my parts a lot, so maybe they're gonna last longer like a car. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently no. Well, so I can make this even more complicated then. Okay. If, and this is uh, known data, and I, I'm telling you, every topic that we're touching on really could have a 15-minute um, uh, segment on its own. But birth control pills, which are often used in preventing pregnancy. We use them for other conditions too, preventing other, other uh, diseases like endometriosis or controlling it, not preventing it. Um, birth controls act pills actually prevent ovarian cancer for the same reason is that we are uh, decreasing the number of potential errors that are made in the surface of the epithelium of the ovary when it ovulates. Um, birth control pills act as prevention or protection so women who are that are at very high risk of ovarian cancer, a BRCA uh, population, if we have a young lady who we know she has BRCA and she's not ready to go through the preventative surgery, which currently we start thinking about at either age 35 to 40 or when they're done having their childbearing. But when somebody gets their ovaries removed for prevention, they become surgically menopausal. And that may not be desired at the age of 27, or they may not be done having their family. So what we'll do is we'll protect their ovaries by putting them on oral contraceptives or birth control pills to decrease their risk of ovarian cancer. The other thing that can be done to decrease your risk of ovarian cancer, if you are at high risk, is to have a tubal ligation to tie the tubes. And there's some thought actually there, there's known data, it's not thought, that some ovarian cancer actually arises in the fimbria or the fingers of the fallopian tubes and not actually the ovary. 
And when you do a tubal ligation, you can interrupt that pathway somehow, whether we don't know whether it's irritation or, you know, I, I wish we knew the exact mechanism, but we have data that show that doing a tubal ligation or removing the fallopian tubes early can actually decrease the risk of ovarian type cancer without actually removing the ovaries and putting somebody into a menopausal state. Did I answer your question? I kind of yeah. got... I have taken notes. I have so many questions for you. Like I was going to ask you about long-term birth control. I was going to ask you what happens if you have twins or triplets? Like does that, I mean, I, I, I'm going to have to talk to you like five, 10, 15 episodes for sure to get through. I think you did. I think you did answer it. I think, um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I want to make sure that we cover anything though that you think is, is really critical. Cause one of the things you talked about was the HPV testing and, 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 um, the vaccine. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of that. And maybe at the age we should be getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an area that I'm absolutely passionate about. I see patients in my office, not necessarily with cancer, but with the dysplasia, with the precancer syndromes, at least for management or new diagnosis, I would say eight patients a week are coming to me with some sort of surveillance, meaning I'm following them or maintenance or, I call it a tune-up if they need something done um, or new diagnoses for HPV-related conditions. HPV-related conditions include cervix dysplasia, vaginal dysplasia, vulvar dysplasia, and then the associated cancers in all those places. And the HPV virus, the human papilloma virus, the strains that are higher risk and can lead to those conditions, we have a vaccine against those high risk strains. And uh, currently in the United States, the vaccine that's available is targeted against nine of those HPV strains. Two of them are the very high risk 16 and 18 strains that lead to the most uh, likelihood of developing cancers. And that vaccine is FDA approved for women and boys, girls and boys at the age of nine as the youngest. Currently, the pediatric um, associations are recommending them around 10 to 12 or 11 to 12, but it is approved medically at nine. It used to be cut off at age 26, but now the indication has extended to age 45. Wow. Um, yeah. Now a lot of women or men have already been exposed in our population. So um, the group of patients that may be eligible for a vaccine at age 40 is quite small. So that would be decided on an individual basis, but if we can get the young population vaccinated at that early age, you know, theoretically before they are exposed to any HPV virus, um, gosh, we could wipe this out. Uh, it would be wonderful. I I'd have a lot more time to do podcasts. I think it's really good that you're talking about boys and girls, because I think what I hear a lot is, you know, only girls get HPV, but boys are carrying it. I mean, how are we getting it, right? It's generally being passed back and forth. So it is important for boys to get the vaccine, correct? A hundred percent. 
in fact, boys still get HPV cancers and men, you know, boys and men, I, I'll say boys just because that's the target that we, we'd like them to get their vaccines. Um, oral cancers, um, head and neck cancers are HPV related in men. Um, smoking is an enormous um, exacerbating variable for the HPV. So if you have HPV and you add tobacco use on top of it, the um, incidence of disease skyrockets. I use this example to my patients when I'm counseling them about, um, I call it getting on my soapbox where I'm teaching them about their disease and I'm taking care of them and I'm hopefully curing them of their problems. But I'm also using it as a soapbox to educate their grandchildren, their neighbors, the school boards, the people who are um, a little bit skeptical about vaccines. Um, if you don't vaccinate the boys, let's say, and this is hypothetical, let's say your, your beautiful daughter and you've raised her strictly and she's got brothers to protect her and her dad is gonna shoot the first boyfriend that comes to the house but you're protecting her, you're giving her good values, you're teaching her um, good um, uh, social skills and uh, whatever your faith may be. And she's a virgin and she meets a boy and they decide to get engaged and they're going to be married at the age of 36. She hasn't had any sexual encounters or exposures, but the boy that she's marrying maybe had one sexual encounter with one woman or, or man or whatever. And that person had been exposed to 30 people. If she's not vaccinated, or you can flip this situation around and have the boy be the one that's never had any exposure, but now they have it. And now you're dealing with that and the subsequent visits to the doctor and, and the things that have to be taken care of, and they'll be fine because we have screening tools, it's just a nuisance. And I would love for all people to never have to have the word dysplasia um, in their medical records. And definitely I would love for them to never get cancer. Um, but that's why it's so important to vaccinate boys and girls so we can just stop this. It, it would be so lovely to just stop this disease process. Very wise words, doc, very wise words. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Bergman, for joining us today on Let's Finish Cancer and to everyone for listening. We look forward to continuing the conversation on the whole person approach to cancer care with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.